Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take two data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi talking to you from Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Tooze is with us from New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the show, we will be talking about perfume. Valentine's Day is coming up, so stay tuned to hear about the economics of perfume. But first, as always, we wanted to delve into the news. And so the news data point is six, as in... 6%. That is the rate at which the U.S. economy grew last year. That's the fastest rate it's grown since 1983. That's faster than China for the first time in two decades. It was the strongest year of economic growth we have seen in this country since all the way back. In and the strongest economic growth this country has seen in nearly 40 years. Historic economic progress. It turns out that's just one of several indicators that America is booming. Unemployment is down now to 4%. 467,000 jobs were produced last month, even amid the Omicron wave of the pandemic. So it seems like every direction you look, you seem to find uh, data that the economy is in the best shape it's been in memory. But then there's the fact that people aren't happy. Just 34% of Americans say they're happy with President Biden's management of the economy. So, I don't know, there seems to be this paradoxical moment, a strong economy, an anxious public. I thought we could try to make sense of how exactly this happened. So, Adam, first off, is the economy still recovering from the pandemic? Is that an accurate way to present it? I mean, is the economy still defined by the whole that the pandemic put us in, or are we now in a distinct post-pandemic phase of the U.S. economy? Yeah, it's a really puzzling situation as ever, and I think that does mark this out as different from previous moments, and to that extent still defined by COVID. I mean, the growth numbers, as you say, are great whichever way you look, but the fact of the matter is that compared to the pre-COVID trend, the U.S. economy is still 1% to 2%, perhaps 1.5% below pre-crisis trend. And that's true for the labor market as well. Though the unemployment numbers are looking great, we're down 2.5 million workers on what non-farm payrolls were at the beginning of 2020. So that's the kind of ballpark. We're, we're 1 or 2 percentage points off where we should be, despite these rapid growth rates. So they are a rebound phenomenon. And if you look across major sectors of the economy and the service sector in particular, spending is also still way down. So household spending on transport is down 12%, on recreation services down 13%. Even health spending is still down 5% because people are still holding off with those doctor's visits because of the repeated COVID waves, one, one imagines. The, these are the major elements uh, which are holding consumption below where it might be. At the same time, people are buying huge quantities of goods. So there's been a major reshuffling of demand. 
The missing piece as far as the economy as a whole is concerned is business investment. So fixed investment in things like construction and machinery and so on, which is 5.6% below pre-crisis levels. So to that extent, we still are in a situation really of rebound. And it, sh- it shows up in those inflation numbers, which are on everyone's minds. I mean, they are still, though the inflation is increasingly broad-based, they are still in concentrated, the price increases in sectors which have been massively disrupted by covid um, in finance, which of course is attention grabbing, everyone follows, you know, the doings on Wall Street, in the, well, at least the news outlets do. Um, we're in at this point in correction territory. I mean, in the sense of like, how low is it going to go? How 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 much? How many of the gains are going to be given up? And that too is a question that is really, you know, left to us, bequeathed to us by the rebound. The only sectors where you could really say there's a story independent of the COVID cyclical shock are in things like, you know, energy, the green transition, automotive, and then, of course, the long-running, you know, enthusiasm around the latest doings in Silicon Valley and tech. There you do have a kind of a story about the American economy that stretches out into the future over a five to 10-year time horizon. The rest, for the rest, um, though the news is good, uh, we are still very much, I think, in in the rebound zone. So... (laughs) I mean, you're pointing out that there is this kind of 1% to 2% divergence from where we ought to be. But does that fully explain the anxiety that Americans are feeling? I mean, the approval ratings for Biden's uh, management of the economy, again, are, are in the 30s, 34%. Um, does it really just come down to inflation? Is there another uh, factor that explains this kind of discontent? Or, or is it political polarization? I mean, will Americans ever universally feel their economy is doing well? That's, I think, the key here. Um, The Michigan um, Consumer Sentiment Index numbers are particularly stark on on this score. There is a huge polarization in American public opinion between Republican supporters who, broadly speaking, were hugely positive about the Trump administration and its economic management, regardless, really, of data. And uh, and conversely, the the Democrats and those two camps, which are broadly speaking equal in size, shifted side. And I think what we've seen over the course of of this year and the last 12 months is a a degree of, if you like, disillusionment on the part of, of of the Biden supporting group, whereas the Republicans remain stuck in their overwhelmingly negative view. It is worth saying, I think, that the consumer confidence numbers, there's two basic sources on these. The Michigan survey has seen a major slump since the spring. And those do seem to be extremely sensitive to especially gas prices, to petrol prices. It's a relatively narrowly based survey. They 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 conduct this survey with 500 households. It's a carefully controlled group, but nevertheless... And those data are notoriously sensitive to to petrol prices. If you use something more broadly based, like the Conference Board's Consumer Confidence Index, which samples a larger group, 3,000 households, those numbers have proved more robust. And even in those numbers, we don't see the same spiking of concern around inflation. Inflation concerns did rise in the Conference Board numbers, but peaked already in the fall. And since then, we've not seen any further increase in anxiety on in on the part of American consumers. The same is the, the result you get from the New York Fed's sampling of consumer confidence. So I think there is an anxiety level there. It set in really over the summer and into the early autumn of last year. And right now, we're kind of at a plateau. And I think the Biden administration generally is like looking for the story that will carry them into 2022 and give them a 
uh, a fighting chance in the midterms. This is not the first time we've talked about inflation, Adam, on this podcast. And from what I can tell, it kind of seems to pose a puzzle. I mean, previously, when we've talked about it, it almost seemed like economists think of inflation as a sign of a, of a healthy economy, that things are growing and heating up. Um, but then on the other hand, uh, as you're also sort of pointing out, most people just seem to hate it. So I don't know. I mean, all things being equal, should economies let inflation run on longer than people would prefer? And is that an advantage then that non-democracies have? I mean, that they don't have to be as responsive to consumer sensitivities in the short term? Well, well, yeah, I mean, in general, inflation is something that we, you know, or at least price increases are a sign that demand is running ahead of supply. And, and normally that's due to demand being strong. Right now we're in the unusual situation of actually having supply difficulties. So this gap between demand and supply, which drives changes in prices, is due to the supply side. But, you know, on balance, would we rather have strong demand given any level of available supply? You bet, yeah, we would rather have strong demand. So of the problems to have, inflation is the better problem to have than deflation. As for authoritarians and Democrats, I mean, China, frankly, the biggest authoritarian regime, the most successful in economic terms, is highly sensitive to inflation and stamps on it rapidly if it emerges, especially in foodstuffs like pork. I mean, they adopt immediate emergency measures. The entire effort to deflate the housing market in China is driven by this. And Russia, likewise, has adopted a pretty tough stance on inflation. They don't always succeed because sanctions makes it difficult. They import a lot of key items in the consumer basket. But there's certainly not much sign of greater flexibility on their part. I think, I mean, the bottom line is that unless you are just conservatively predisposed, you should try and run the economy at the highest rate of inflation you can cope with, so long as it doesn't shake confidence in some big and important part of the business sector or amongst households or, or other sorts of price setters. And so long as the expectation of further inflation doesn't become entrenched in society such that it becomes a sort of unstoppable avalanche. And if you begin to sense that either of those two things are happening, that major uh, parts of the economy are suffering a crisis of confidence or that it, inflation expectations are building up, that's the time to move. And that's the delicate issue that all the central banks around the world right now are trying to time. I mean, frankly, what worries the Fed in these terms is not so much the consumer sentiment numbers, but the bond market. That's the fundamental bit of the economy, which is very sensitive to inflation, because if inflation goes up, then the value of bonds goes down, basically, in real terms. And it's anxiety in the bond market and the bond market, in turn, watching the Fed to see how carefully the Fed is monitoring inflation that is the center of the entire psychodrama right now, if you look beyond the politics and the concerns about the midterms. Yeah, I mean, so, so Fed Chief Jerome Powell in Washington, I mean, he's made it pretty clear that he's now on the verge of raising interest rates in part to tame inflation and in part to respond to the bond markets. Um, I mean, what sort of immediate effects is that going to have on the U.S. economy? I mean, overall, is there going to be more turbulence on the stock markets, a sudden cooling off of the housing market? Might normal Americans soon regret, you know, demanding some kind of response to inflation? Those are the risks. I mean, as the saying goes, economic recoveries don't die of old age. They're usually sent to their graves by the Fed, hmm. by premature or excessive action. Um, and the direct effect of raising rates is to make borrowing more expensive. And that will hit people by way of 
mortgage rates or by way of credit cards. And because credit card debt has, in fact, been cut back quite hard by households over the course of the COVID crisis, people use the stimulus checks to pay those down. It's really the housing market, I think, that everyone is paying attention to. And with mortgage rates moving towards 4%, there are some very alarming predictions out there. I mean, the Mortgage Bankers Association, which is the industry trade group, so we should take this with a pinch of salt. But they nevertheless, in their forecast, said that if mortgage rates hit 4%, which is where they're headed towards, they could see the real estate market tipping from a strong updraft with prices rising by 20% last year to a decline of 2.5%. And that kind of switchback that would be pretty scary stuff. That could then indeed spill out over into the financial markets. It, uh, an interest rate increase on the part of the Fed um, put stress in fixed income bonds, which are, have a fixed interest rate. And so the older ones with the lower interest rates are less attractive, and it could spill over into the stock market. But by the time we're talking about you know the financial markets, we should really put that normal Americans in inverted commas, right? Because though 100 million plus American households own some amount of stock, uh, 84% of all equity holdings in the United States are confined to the top 10% of households and the top 20% own 93%. So as far as average Americans are concerned, really, they should shrug when it comes to financial market news. It's only when it ripples over into the labor market or the housing market that the majority of Americans are seriously affected. And for them, indeed, if there was a sudden sharp increase in rates and a sudden slowdown in the labor market or in real estate, then that would hit tens, if not hundreds of millions of people. I think the Fed is acutely conscious of this. And for all of the hawkish talk, they're going to take it slow. Okay, yeah, there is something sounds so tragic about this, about, uh, you know, Americans experiencing inflation and then sort of demanding a cure that will hurt them across the board in, in ways as well that you're describing. But uh, I guess sometimes the economy is just a tragic story. I mean, just to finish off here then, Adam, I mean, you know, these are boom times in America in some ways. And I'm just curious, what do you think we should make of the fact that the man who's overseeing this economic success is Biden, someone who's never been mistaken for a technocrat? I mean, like, compared to Obama, who is sort of known for reading and poring over, you know, all the different policy memos and data, et cetera. I mean, Biden's never really had that kind of image. I mean, is there some lesson in the fact that this economic leadership is being provided by someone who isn't really an economic sophisticate? I was thinking about this. I mean, on that basis, when was the last time that America had a technocratic president? I mean, was it Jimmy Carter, maybe, the engineer, or hmm. Herbert Hoover, the engineer? I mean, the rest were all smart, perhaps, or at least some of them were, but they were lawyers, right, on the whole. Hmm. So, I mean, it's not like, you know, I mean, Clinton and Obama could talk a good game about practically anything, but they weren't economists, after all. Um, the more surprising thing, in a way, is, you know, Jerome Powell as, as Fed chair, who isn't an economist. He's a lawyer, too. I mean, a business lawyer, but nevertheless, not an economist. So not a Janet Yellen or a Ben Bernanke type. I mean, I think the real issue here, and it's going to be a test going forward, is, you know, whether Biden has and the Biden team have the coherence and flexibility to respond to the challenges. I like the way you put the question. I think, in broadly speaking, it would be a mistake to characterize the current situation as anything other than a success. I mean, this is what a very rapid recovery from a shock looks like. And yes, it may get a little messy because you've really put your, you know, you put the pedal to the metal and um, we're driving the US economy hot right now. 
So then the question is, you know, how do you roll with the punch? How do you roll with the situation? Do you get intimidated by the inflation hawks? Can they hold their line? Can they craft a new narrative? Because if there's a gloom here, it's not really the inflation numbers, which don't give any immediate reason for panic. The, the source of the panic is political, right? The fact that the Democrats can see an absolute disaster coming their way in the midterms. And I think that's where the real heat in this conversation comes from in political terms. The inflation rate, high as it is right now, I think, you know, in their hearts of hearts, in, in private, no one actually believes the 7% is going to roll on through the rest of the year. Everything about the data says that this is going to calm down in due course. The question is whether it will calm down soon enough for the Democrats to survive, you know, November. Okay, well, we will end there and come back to talk about uh, Valentine's Day, probably one of the big spending holidays of the year for people in relationships out there. So stick with us. We'll be right back. So our next data point is $52.4 billion. That is the size that the global perfume market is expected to be in 2025. As recently as 2020, it was $33.7 billion. So it's a growing market around the world. When making up a list of potential presents for a loved one, a luxury perfume is often on the short list. So what is it about a scent that has such emotional resonance? Joining us now to discuss... It might also be a growing market in your own household these days. Valentine's Day is obviously coming up, so we thought we'd focus on one of the most popular gifts, see what it tells us about how the world works these days. Smell is our most primitive and least understood sense. Perfume manipulates that sense, instantly reminding us of good times past and speaking of glamour and sophistication to those who get close. So, Apple's iPhones are made in China, Germany's cars are made in Eastern Europe, but the center of global high-end perfume production, as far as I could tell on my own research, is still France. Uh, so, Adam... Why hasn't production migrated elsewhere? I mean, presumably there there are cheaper options, right? I mean, what is the economic logic of staying put in old Europe? Yeah, I mean, the, the center of global high-end perfume production anyway is, is, is generally reckoned to be the small town of Grasse in the south of France, in the, in the Riviera. And the most basic answer to this question is that the ingredients for high-end perfumes are natural. So it's about jasmine and roses and where flowers like that grow. And because of the climate and the soil, they have a very particular scent. It, it's what's in you know, the French wine business. It's called terroir, territory. And to folks with fine noses, each of these flavors and scents is completely distinctive from a particular place, a particular plant, a particular year indeed. So no more than you can grow you know, burgundy, white burgundy, by simply planting Chardonnay grape anywhere you like, can you grow Chanel Number no. 5 perfume anywhere else? Chanel Number no. 5 perfume can only be made with the, the distillate from jasmine grown around grass. And the owners of the brand have bought up about 30 hectares of prime jasmine land uh, in that vicinity, on those slopes, with that particular sunshine, with that particular land, with that particular terroir to ensure it. And the highest quality extracts from grass for so jasmine, for instance, obtain absolutely enormous prices. So one kilo of 
jasmine absolute, which is the most intense form of extract, comes to about 135,000 euros. So beyond that, though, beyond those kind of natural uh, factors which define this, it's, it's also a matter of what's called clusters of expertise or agglomeration. So Michael Porter, a professor at Harvard Business School, um, coined this phrase, uh, cluster. But Paul Krugman, in his path-breaking economic geography in the 70s and 80s, described the same process where everyone needs to be in grasp because everyone's in grasp. So all of the key global perfumiers, all of the key global um, firms that are in the scent business, even American multinationals like International Flavors and Fragrances or the Swiss firms, they're all there. Uh, and that's actually true of iPhone production as well, right? So on the one hand, Silicon Valley in California, and on the other hand, Shenzhen in China and the Pearl River Delta hubs. There, everyone's there because the workforce is there and the contractor networks are there. And these connections are historic as a result. This is something that somebody like Paul Krugman really pointed out, is it's a chain reaction. It's a path dependency. And in some of those are really peculiar. So grass emerged as a perfume center because it was originally the opposite. It was a center for tanning. It was a very stinky place because it was about leather. And glove makers in the town who were looking for ways to make their products more sweet smelling hit upon the idea of using the extract from local flowers, which they used to rub into the leather after they mixed it with animal fat. So you greased, as it were, the gloves with this, with the scent of lavender and and uh, jasmine, and people recognized that this could be in itself a product. And by the 19th century, the French Riviera's a whole thing. It's a leisure resort. Queen Victoria is a big client, not just of the local hotels and spas, but of perfume manufacturers. And now, 100 plus years on from that, in 2018, UNESCO has recognized the perfume making savoir faire of grass as an intangible world cultural heritage. Okay, so so on the one hand, we have this local terroir and this local networks, but has the composition of perfume changed with globalization of recent decades? I mean, presumably there's more access to different kinds of raw materials. I mean, has that led to greater experimentation in perfume production? For sure. But I think the crucial thing to recognize is that perfume was always global. I mean, if you think about it, smell is perhaps our least well-developed um, sensory faculty, but it's pretty primal. And there's evidence of perfume workshops going back to the most ancient civilizations that we know of. Ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia had perfume workshops in you know, 2000 BC. China and India have deep perfume traditions. I mean, the Europeans are Johnny come lately to, I mean, this is the story of globalization in general, but there's nothing that's more telling about this than perfume. And say the distillation, the technique for distilling rose water so out of which then develops the entire distillery industry was developed in Persia in the, in the 900s. Um, Europeans were totally fascinated by this. If you think about European exoticization of the rest of the world, of European Orientalism, it centers quite crucially on scent, on the smells, right? On both horrible on the one hand and on the other hand, horrible to our nose. And on the other hand, totally beguiling, intoxicating. And so from the 19th century onwards, yeah, a place like grass was full of neural materials, flowers and distillates from Tunisia and Morocco or patchouli from Singapore or pink pepperwood from California, different types of jasmine, not the local type from Egypt. And um, it's really a, a multinational business, even within Europe, right? So Chanel Number no. 5, the archetypal modern scent, is developed by an expat Franco-Russian uh, perfumer, Ernest Beau, who had actually created scents for the Romanovs, for the, for the Tsarist dis dynasty before 1914, 
the one that uh, number five is supposed to be modeled on was was called Le Bouquet de Catherine. So it was a it created formulated in honor of the 300th anniversary of the Romanov dynasty in 1913. And then after the revolution, when that kind of bourgeois and aristocratic frippery was frowned upon by the by the Bolsheviks, he re-emigrates to France and hooks up with Chanel and and out of that emerges Chanel number no. five. So it's a it's an inherently global business. Okay, I did not know that it traces back to Persia. I'm going to tell my parents that they're always proud to point to things that trace back to Iran. So I'll let them know. But these days, I guess, what spectrum does the perfume market cover? I mean, what is the distance, say, between low end fragrances and the highest end of, of luxury perfumes? You know, the range is, is huge. It goes from cheap colognes that you can pick up for a few bucks to, you know, prestige bottles that you would buy at duty free or in a nice cosmetic store that might run to 150 to 200 uh, bucks for a bottle. The sort of brand names that people would be familiar with, Dior and, and so on. And then at the ultra extreme end, like Louis Vuitton currently offers a personal perfume service where they're chief perfume maker, a man wonderfully called Jacques Cavalier <laughs> Bellatrude, will for 60,000 euros fashion you your personal scent. And, and this literally promises that no one else in the world will smell like you whenever you enter a room. And they guarantee that your personal concoction will be available forever after, uh, come what may. It all really crucially depends on the ingredients. You know, if you're using some of that 130,000 euro per kilo Jasmine, then, then you know, you're in at the high end right from the very beginning. And then how dilute it is, right? So whether or not you're diluting the, 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 the scents with and the oils, the essential oils with how much alcohol. So at one end, you have the cheap colognes and colognes are high alcohol content perfume. And the, the fancier end has the lower alcohol content. Okay, that name is itself, I think, worth money. Whether uh, I won't try to repeat it, but um, how much do perfume manufacturers tailor their products for new markets? I mean, when it comes to say China, are manufacturers trying to engineer products for their preferred scents, or does it work the other way around? Does China want access to the allure of, of Western products here? China consumption of perfume at home is relatively modest so far. And what's really fascinating about it is that all of the energy right now is not towards the Chinese appropriation of Western glamour, but the other way around. So the, the new fashion, apparently, um, is what's called Guo Chao. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, or the national tide, or uh, to put it another way, simply Chinese heritage hip. Um, and this is Chinese consumers who are going with the flow of the current moment, all down for you know the new Cold War with the United States and want sense with Chinese cultural associations to match. So the wonderfully named Wigu um, offers sweet Osmanthus rain, whose name derives apparently from one of the famous topoi in ancient Chinese poetry or the traditional Chinese pear incense. So scents that, as it were, conjure up ancient China and familiar national patterns, but then also more imaginative, younger scents, uh, which conjure up the childhood memories of the current generation in a society changing as rapidly as China. That's that's really quite significant. So apparently there's a scent house called, um, who've created a scent called Baby Gull, and it imitates the smell of slightly damp, old-fashioned renminbi yuan cash notes. 
So it reminds mm. the current generation of totally digitally native Chinese youngsters that once upon a time, when they wanted money, what they wanted was the smell of this, you know, slightly damp paper money. And that is a scent which apparently is all the rage right now in the fashionable circles in Beijing and Shanghai. Wow, that that just cuts out the middleman. Just why not just smell like money, like literally smell like money. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> um, so I guess I mean to end with like it's a labor market question. I mean, how does one become a perfumer to begin with? I mean, what is the career path here like? Is, is this an old-fashioned guild-style system where you have to work through apprenticeships, that kind of thing, or is this more high-tech these days? I mean, where you have to go to university to study chemical engineering or something. And what is the fallback option for a perfumer? I mean, presumably there are, I guess, other scent-related industries you could turn to, deodorants, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think if, in, in a short answer to the question of how to become a master perfumer is to is to be born French, or, or if you have to be born Swiss, and best of all, be born in Grasse. And, and many of the older generation do come from local families and were trained by masters of the old generation, like this, this legendary figure, apparently Jean Carl, who is known as the Beethoven of perfumers because he actually lost his sense of smell kept it secret and nevertheless composed a whole series of classic scents for houses like Dior. And Carl devised, he was kind of a, both a traditionalist and on the other hand, a modernizer. So he had a kind of artisanal system of training with a system of 60 basic scents that had to be learned in different orders. And students had to learn to distinguish different ratios of oak moss and patchouli, though in you know, differing proportions from one to nine to nine to one. And then you'd add an additional note when you were in control of this. But under Carl's tutorship, the training was also based squarely in chemistry. You can't separate the history of perfume from the history of chemistry. So students would study the basic components of phenols, ethyls, alcohols, and so on, and how they came together. Carl wanted to know about, crucially, the volatility of components, not just their smell, right? Because how a, how a perfume acts on you depends, crucially, on how it volatilizes. Today, frankly, anyone wanting a high-flying career would still want to cut their chops in grass. But then after that, you take a degree from an institution fabulously named, as perhaps only the French would, Institut Supérieur International du Parfum, de la Cosmétique et de l'Aromatique Alimentaire. So this is a French school for, you know, the, the study of, of cosmetics and food flavoring. This is, of course, founded and based in Versailles by one of, by Guerlain, one of the great uh, perfume houses. There are several others. There's an Ecole Supérieure du Parfum in Paris and in Grasse. Closer to home, uh, International Flavors and Fragrances, Inc. in the United States maintains a, a, a school uh, for training perfumers, as does, say, uh, you know, the FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. And if it doesn't work out, well, you could follow your dream into food flavoring or, as you say, heaven forbid, into the realms of, of deodorant. And, and for that, too, there is a cluster, it turns out. And it's known as, wait for it, Stink Highway. And it's located <laughs> on the section of Interstate 95, I-95, between Philadelphia and Newark, New Jersey. And it's there because in Monel Chemical Census Center in Philadelphia in 1990, a pioneering chemist, George Pretty, isolated the specific molecule. I'm, I'm going to make a fool of myself, but it's 3-methyl-2-hexonuic acid that produces the smell of underarm sweat. So he located the <laughs> chemical origins of BO. And having done that, he was then able to create scent blockers that, that specifically take out 
the flavor, the, the, the scent of BO. So once again, as it were, it's stink that's driving the development of the scent industry. And um, many of the same players that are present in, in grass are also there on I-95 on 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 stink highway um perfecting <laughs> their crafts and eliminating mal malodorous invasions of our of our noses i like thinking of this as a kind of yin yang there's the terroir of grass and then the, the stink highway of new jersey um well okay uh i guess we'll leave it there i still don't know which of these to get for my wife but still a couple days to figure that out And this segment actually came by way of a suggestion from a listener. So thanks to the Twitter user at Knuckles underscore music for the suggestion that we do something on perfume. Happy Valentine's Day to you, Adam. And uh, yeah, happy Valentine's Day to everyone out there. Okay, that's it for another episode of Ones and Twos. Thanks as always to my co-host, Adam Twos. Listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us at ones and twos pod. Remember, that's twos as in Adam's name, T-O-O-Z-E. And of course, uh, remember to follow and review us uh, on your favorite podcast app. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rosprow-Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tatey. The executive editor of FP Podcast is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. <laughs>